I'm Devorah Vale. I'm a life and wellness coach and the host of this podcast. Welcome to Accessing Your Best Self, a space meant for exploring the wisdom of Torah and its practical application for improving our character. Okay, good morning, everybody. Shavua Tov. I'm sure everybody's got Pesach on their minds and uh, starting to find and look for those crumbs. Yeah, I started a little bit last week. I was amazed to find a one little piece of barley in my chair in my bedroom, a tiny little barley. Like, what is it doing there? I don't know, but it made me feel good to find it. And then, believe it or not, I went into my washing machine, same day, and opened it up, and there was a noodle. I wasn't cleaning my washing machine. I was just taking my clothes out. But there was a noodle, you know, on the washing machine. And I was like, oh, wow, this is great. A freebie. I still remember one Pesach in Israel where I cleaned like a fiend. I mean, literally toothpicks and toothbrushes and the whole the whole thing. And then I was literally sitting at the Seder and I looked down at my dress. I was wearing a black dress, so it was easy to see. I looked down and there was a noodle on my dress, like a tiny little, and it was like, unbelievable. I Now I know why you need to get new clothes and make sure everything's dry clean. If you're wearing something that, you know, is not new, because I'm telling you, after all that cleaning and scrubbing, looking down and finding the noodle was the biggest irony and uh, catastrophe of Pesach for me. Anyway. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about today, ladies. I prepared a lot of different classes, but I figured everybody's got hummets on the brain and getting rid of it because that is what we women do best. And there's actually an idea that, you know, we can be trusted more more than the men because we really do want to get rid of the hummets. And most of all, on top of it, we also can't help ourselves. We want to do some spring cleaning on top of it. So there are there is a distinction between getting rid of chametz and spring cleaning, which of course many rabbis in the last I don't know how many years, Rav Scheinberg I think was the first from Israel, was coming out with all kinds of you know uh, pamphlets for women explaining the difference between chametz and spring cleaning, and you know what you really have to get rid of and what you really don't, and even things that are like chametz stick but they're not easily accessible, you know, if they're sprayed with some kind of bleach or there's some kind of, uh, you know, uh, toxic element, the the halacha is that a dog wouldn't even eat it. It's basically not considered chametz anymore, even if, you know, it's it's still there. So there's all kinds of things that that the rabbis have written because we live in bigger houses, the, the houses even the small houses of today were considered mansions in the olden days. And people who had mansions in the olden days had many servants to take care of all of their needs. Today, the rabbis note that we live in large houses, but we don't necessarily have servants. And so the pace of cleaning has taken you know, much bigger proportions and it takes a toll on women if they go overboard. You know, what happens is we come to the Seder resentful, angry, nasty, and we've been yelling at everybody for an entire month. And that's not the way Hashem wanted us to come to the Seder. 
especially since the holiday of Pesach, like the holiday of Purim, um, we say, it was in the merit of righteous women that we were saved and redeemed from Egypt. The four cups of wine correspond to the four imahos, Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and Leah. And so just like Esther was the savior, if you like, with, of course, uh, an assist from Mordechai, or more than an assist, but she was the main central character of the Purim story, so too we know that the Chumash is full of women who were the ones who kept the Jewish people going while we were in Egypt and always had that vision of future redemption. And so women play a very big role in the, in the Pesach story as well. Just, you know, starting with Miriam, who when her father Amram, who was the leader of the generation, was going to divorce his wife, um, Yocheved, because of the decree to kill all the Jewish boys, she said, came to her father and said, you know, father, you're worse than Paro because Paro made a decree to kill the boys, but by your not having children at all, you're also getting rid of all the girls, the potential girls that could be born. And because of her words, Amram got back together with his wife. And of course, Moshe Rabbeinu was born soon after. And then we have the story of Shifra and Pua. Shifra and Pua were the two midwives. They were we're told that they were actually Yocheved and Miriam. I just read Miriam was only five years old at this time. And they were taking care of the babies who were born. And of course, they were going against the decree of Paro, who said that, you know, when the children are delivered, he wanted these midwives to kill them as soon as they exited the womb. And of course, they defied Paro and didn't do it. And we were rewarded greatly for that courage. Um, we have Bacha Basparo in the story, right? Bacha, who does become a convert to Judaism. She's Bacha Basparo. And she's the one, of course, who saves baby Moshe and makes sure that he's raised in the palace of the king. But at the same time, in his infancy and childhood years, she makes sure that he, she sends him to Yocheved to be nursed. He refuses to nurse from any Egyptian midwife. And... And um, of course, she teaches us about her arm, which outstretches to save the baby and how when we want to do the right thing, Hashem comes and helps us to be able to do it. And of course, just in general, the women who used mirrors in order to entice their husbands who were worn out and tired and oppressed from Egyptian slavery to want to have intimacy with them and to create more children. And these same mirrors that they used for this purpose ended up becoming the mirrors that were used to build, to construct the kior, the, the sink that the Kohanim used in the Mishkan. And there's even a question where I think Moshe says, you know, Hashem, you want me to use these mirrors? How could I use these mirrors for something so holy? And, and Hashem explains, these are holy mirrors because the women use them to keep the Jewish people going, to help the Jewish people survive. And because the women saw the future, they envisioned the future. Women are process. Women understand process. 
The man gives us the seed, but the woman is the one who takes the seed and nourishes and nurtures it for nine months. So we have that concept of process built into our very being, that things don't happen in a moment. They have to be taken and nurtured and watched over and handled with care. And there's a lot of process involved before we see the final redemption, if you like, the redemption that comes after birth, right? And the redemption of any process that we put a lot into, it takes time until we see it. And men, you know, don't have that staying power in the same way that women do. Okay, but I want to move now to, um, first of all, just a quick review, we know about chametz, that chametz is not just bread, it's not just the idea of bread and crumbs, but chametz is another way of talking about the Yetzirah, the ego, the sitra achra, uh, that which makes man feel puffed up, which removes, uh, you know, which, which creates no room, so to speak, for God, right? I did it, it's my talent, it's my strengths, it's my, uh, you know, my strategies, my, my uh, intelligence that created whatever it is. And chametz is, is symbolic of the fact that while we're cleaning for Pesach, we're also ferreting out all of those places within our own psyches, within our own ways of thinking, that are connected, that go against the concept of matzah. Matzah is process. Matzah is, matzah is, sorry, matzah is simplicity. Matzah is anivus, it's humility. Matzah is the idea that from the time we cut the wheat, literally, shmura matzah is from the time we cut the wheat, the, 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 the wheat is washed. From that moment until the matzah is actually being made, that no water should touch it. It's the concept of hashkacha pratis, that God is somebody who is involved in the world in the mo most minutest detail. Chametz is something that happens on its own. You leave flour and water together for a certain amount of time and something begins to happen and everything starts to rise even without yeast. Right, if 18 minutes go by, one second more than 18 minutes, flour and water turns into chametz. So chametz is the idea of the Satan of Amalek that says things just happen, right? If you leave it and do nothing, things just happen. In other words, a world without God. Amalek says everything is random. Everything just happens. Sometimes it happens like this. Sometimes it happens like that. But there's no rhyme or reason to anything that happens, which is really the root of atheism, right? Maybe God created the world, but he's not interested in the world anymore. He's on vacation. We recall Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim over and over again, and it's mentioned in the Torah, I don't know how many times, probably a hundred at least, why, why do we, you know, why do we do this? Why do we do that? Because you went out of Egypt. Why do you have to treat the stranger in a certain way, the gear, the, the widow, the orphan, the weak people in society? Because you know what it felt like to be a slave in Egypt. 
So over and over again, we're reminded that God is the God of history. God is involved in history. And that's the message that the Jewish people give to the world, that he's involved in the everyday, that nothing just happens like matzah. If you don't guard it and, and knead it and get it into the oven within 18 minutes, it's no longer matzah. Okay, so I want to move on now to a class by Dina Schoonmaker. And we'll see how much of it we can get through today. So this is a class on Pesach cleaning, because that's what we're all busy with now. And it's, of course, as always with Dina's material, inspiring, but also very practical and very Musser oriented. So she actually uses a, a book written by a man. He wrote a series called Bilvavi Mishkan Evna, which a lot of the four elements of the soul come from. And he remained anonymous for many years writing these books. But as she said, the more and more he started teaching, the less he was able to be anonymous. His name is Rav Itamar Schwartz, and he wrote a book for men about cleaning for Pesach, which is very interesting. A man writing a book for men about cleaning for Pesach. So if you could sum up his main theme in all of his works, it's the idea that we need to infuse spirituality with a connection to Hashem. In other words, you know, you can be a spiritual person, but you can still be very disconnected in terms of really being mindful about what you're doing, connecting you to Hashem. And he talks about five aspects of Pesach cleaning and the attitude that one should have while they're doing it. So the first level is something that he calls milumada. Okay, this is a well-known idea in religious circles. Mitzvos anashim milumada, which basically means mitzvahs that are done by rote. And this is a from person's problem. You know, if you grow up religious and you've spent your whole life doing mitzvot, because that's what everybody around you does. And that's, you know, what you're used to. So one of the greatest enemies of this is that you're used to it. So it doesn't have any kind of special meaning to you. You don't know why you're doing it. And you don't know what it's supposed to be doing for you. And you even forget who you're doing it for, right? You can be sitting in basement just learning Torah all day because it's a great academic exercise and forget that the whole reason you're sitting and learning is for Hashem and because of Hashem and in order to make yourself more like Hashem. So this is true on that level and this is true even in the level of cleaning for Pesach. So what Dina Schoonmaker says, based on this idea, is that if you're already spending so much time cleaning, at least have kavana, make it meaningful, infuse it with spirituality, be mindful while you're doing the mitzvah. I mean, I like to think that while I'm cleaning the chametz out of my house, it's a remez, it's a hint to the fact that I'm also cleaning 
the chametz out of myself, right? And when we're looking at every nook and cranny of our home, the idea is that, you know, we have many nooks and crannies where even if outwardly we appear very religious or, you know, God willing, we're people who are growing. There's a lot of areas where I think I'm perfect already, or there's areas where I think you're the one with the problem, not me. And these are areas that are dark, so to speak, or full of chametz. And what we're trying to do is find those places within ourselves as we go through this external searching for the chametz, because the external affects the internal if we connect it that way, right? When we smile on the outside, we naturally begin to feel happier, right? Even putting on a fake smile, I think they've done studies where physiologically things change in your body just by putting on a smile, okay? So the idea with the cleaning is that we're cleaning out ourselves at the same time. But another thing that she says is, you know, while you're removing the chametz, to ask yourself, why am I doing this? And the real bottom line of why we're doing it is because Hashem told us to do it, like every other mitzvah, right? And so the idea is a lot of people, when they're preparing for Shabbos, when they're making their challah, when they're getting things ready, they'll say, Lekavod Shabbos Kodesh, right? That's the special ingredient that I'm putting into my food to make it really taste good, is that kavana of the Kavod Shabbos Kodesh. This is for the honor of Shabbos. So Dina Schoonmaker says that Rabbi Itamar Schwartz suggests that while you're cleaning, say to yourself every so often, right? Stop and say, Hashem, I'm doing your will. I'm doing what you asked of me, right? If we look into the Chumash and we read where it talks about, um, did I mark it off here? I don't know where it talks about chametz and how severe is the punishment for not getting rid of all of it, it really should help us to be able to realize that we're doing this because Hashem told us to. We'll save that for another class. Um, but you can all see in Parsha's bow where it talks about getting rid of the chametz and how you can't see it and it can't be in your house and it can't be in your possession and you, you have to get rid of it completely. And, and, the, and the punishment for not getting rid of it is something called kares, which is in English called spiritual excision, which basically means you are completely cut off from Hashem. I mean... It's pretty severe when you think that, you know, if you light a fire on Shabbos, you're high of Misa, meaning you're, you know, you, you could get the death penalty in the olden days, but you still went to heaven and you still were part of the Jewish people. Chametz means that you're totally cut off from the Jewish people, but that's not my subject today, maybe next week. So I'll go back to that. But the idea is I'm doing this because I want to make my will uh, sorry, I want to make your will, Hashem, my will. Okay. But in general, just to have intentionality in what we're doing. So just as an aside, Dina says, we do so much as mothers and as wives for other people. And sometimes we feel resentful because we're not appreciated enough. And she says that, you know, sometimes we have to ask ourselves, what was my intention? 
when I was doing what I was doing, even an act of nurturance, even something I was doing for somebody else, if we don't have this intentionality that what I'm doing is to nurture other people, then sometimes other people don't receive it that way because people are complex and we can have a lot of other emotions mixed in to our giving and our intention for why we're giving, right? And as women, we know this. When we give with resentment and we give from a place of <clears throat> guilt or dissatisfaction, we shouldn't be surprised if the other person receives it in a way that is less than what we would have hoped. You know, she gives a very simple idea, but the idea is that my intentionality can often affect how something is received. You know, she says, let's pretend you're making a salad, okay? While you're making that salad, you're really frustrated because you're in a big rush. You really want to be somewhere else, but you got to make the salad for whoever is waiting for it. And you're chopping and you're cutting and every single cut and every single slice is full of frustration. Okay. Or she says you're making the salad and the whole thing that's going on in your mind with the salad is your perfectionistic tendencies, right? Everything has to be perfect. It has to be cut perfectly. It has to have the exact proper ingredients. It has to have, you know, the exact amount of dress, whatever it has to be dressing. And your perfectionistic tendencies, if the other person doesn't say, wow, this is perfect, this, or they say anything critical about it, that's it. You're going to blow up at them. I remember, I don't know where I got this from. I remember in a Dr. Spock book, remember Dr. Spock, he was very, um, popular when my mother was raising us. I think that's why we became, we were such wild kids. I don't, I think he said no rules, right? But anyway, I remember one of the very intelligent things that he said was that if you pachka too much with meals for your little children, right? You, you, you put so much into it. And then your kid says, ooh, yuck, or Ugh, I don't want this you get really upset because you put so much into it. And that's why his advice was make simple things for your kids. Give them a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Keep it simple because then if they say, I don't want it, you're not as invested. You're not as upset because you didn't spend an hour making it, you know, whatever it is, that seven layer cake, or, I mean, obviously they'd like that, but whatever it is, you know, the moussaka or the uh, lemon meringue pie from scratch or whatever. And they say, oh, I don't like lemon. Anyway, the point is, is that when you don't invest so much of your own perfectionism, then you might not be as disappointed and another thing she says is fear. You know, she just gives that an example. You know, I better make the salad quickly because everybody's going to complain that there's nothing healthy at, in this meal, right? So if we put it in intentionality of making them happy and of wanting to nurture our families or whoever it is that we're giving to, we might be surprised that people receive things in a different way. And she says, you know, when people think of somebody who's passed on and they think of, you know, things that they did for them, often it's the very simple things, you know, the way my mother kissed me goodnight or spent time with me at bedtime or 
just small little things by offering somebody a drink um, done with total sincerity and nurturance can re be received sometimes more readily than something that's, you know, more involved. Because again, she says there's complexity to our feelings and our intentions when we do something for others. And that's why it's important to sort of be mindful of the reason I'm doing this is to nurture you, is to create connection, is because I love you. And not for all these other, so to speak, ulterior motives to make you like me, to make you honor me, you know, to, um, you know, we can have so many uh, reasons that we're not even aware of unless we really tune in to our deeper selves. So many things that are going on subconsciously, consciously, obviously we're very complicated people. Okay, but on a more practical note, she um, <clears throat> quotes this Revitzen Spanner, who's a Hina Chabanim expert in Israel. And she said, one way of creating this nurturance when you're doing something for somebody else is, you know, let's say you're making meatballs for dinner and you know that it's your son Yoni's favorite dinner. So you'll announce to the whole family, you know, we're having meatballs tonight because it's Yoni's favorite, right? And Yoni feels fantastic because he feels that there's this, connection and that it's a you know direct line from your giving to the mindfulness of your wanting to nurture him or you know we're going to this park today because that's Sarah's favorite park and this makes people feel special and um, if you're already doing something make it special and nurture it and so this is the idea when we're cleaning for Pesach I'm fulfilling Hashem's Ratzon I'm cleaning for Pesach because this is a way of nurturing your relationship with Hashem. This is your way, you know, I, I, I came across something I wrote a few years ago. I guess I was in a store and I heard some woman muttering under her breath, I hate Pesach, right? What a surprise, right? I hate Pesach, right? And then, of course, everybody knows that song by um, Moshe. Yes, I think it was. I got the Here Come Pesach Blues. I can play that on the piano. I, I used to not play it at all or sing it, even though I loved all the other songs on that album because I was afraid I was going to poison my children and especially my girls, you know, by singing this song, oh, I got the here come pace up blues, you know, whatever. Uh, a woman's got to pay her dues and my heart thumping and my brain feels numb thinking about those tiny crumbs. Okay, no more singing, but you know that song. Anyway, I figured it was bad you know, to sing that song, but there are people who really feel that way. <clears throat> so again, we want to recognize, even on the most basic level, that when we are cleaning for chametz, we're doing Hashem's will, and that is huge. She'asani kirtsono. As a woman, we say every morning, Hashem created me, according to his will. So in a way we are raised, we are uplifted to a high level in the way that Hashem created us. And when we clean the chametz out, we are giving back to Hashem. We're doing his will the way he created us to do. Okay. <clears throat> so what you don't have to do for Pesach, this is the second thing that um, Rabbi Schwartz talks about. <clears throat> we know that 
Pesach cleaning is not supposed to be spring cleaning, right? You know, in a very technical way, we know that we only have to get rid of the chametz. We don't have to declutter the closets, get new wallpaper, paint all the house, clean the ceilings. No, you know, whatever it is that you do, we don't have to do that. On the other hand, I remember my halachic rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Berkowitz Shlita, who said that you're not allowed to laugh at anybody, specifically women, over Pesach. You're not allowed before Pesach. You're not allowed to make fun of anybody's crazy cleaning habits. Because he said of all the holidays of the Jewish year, this is the one holiday where if you want to be machmir, meaning extremely stringent, and that happens to be your type of personality to begin with, right? Then this is the holiday where you can go crazy when it comes to stringencies, when it comes to customs in your family. <clears throat> for example, there are people on Pesach, <clears throat> my daughter-in-law's sister, for example, is part of the Lubavitch Minhagim <clears throat> and probably other people as well where they don't eat anything that's made in a can. They will make everything from scratch, tomato sauce, ketchup, fruit for dessert. That's like you, Arlene? No, 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 Arlene. No, she's heard of it though. She's white of it. She's white of it. Yeah. Anyway, you can imagine what that's like. They don't buy anything manufactured because they want to make sure this is a stringency, right? That God forbid, if I don't see it, I don't trust it, right? There can't be uh, any chametz in here. Oh, it reminds me of a great story of a new Hassan and Kala who were having, I think, a meal over Pesach uh, at, their, at his machatenistas house, the Hassan and the Kala. And they were a Hasidic couple. And the uh, family noticed that in the chasen soup, there was barley floating in it. This is during Pesach. And they were horrified. They said, what kind of a chasen did, did, did we get? You know, this is terrible. Doesn't the guy clean for Pesach? Anyway, it turned out this was in Yerushalayim. In Yerushalayim, instead of confetti at a wedding, they throw barley. And some of the barley was still in his strimal. And every time he bent his head to drink from the soup, some barley fell in the soup. I know, crazy. This is an Israel story. But anyway, it's just a funny story to be done with Kafshus because, you know, I guess he should know that the, the, the end of the story is make sure you check your strimal before coming to the Pesach Seder, right? <laughs> Whatever that strimal is for you, make sure you check it. Okay. But anyway... <clears throat> So it's not supposed to be spring cleaning, but we want to do it, okay? And believe it or not, this Rabbi Itamar Schwartz, you have to love him for this. He, remember, he's writing the Sefer for men. And he tells the men, if your wife wants you to move something for her, you know, and you start saying to her, what are you doing? There's nothing comments here. You don't have to do this. You know, you're spring cleaning. You're going overboard. He says, it's a chesed to move it for her. Because she can't help herself. She wants to do spring cleaning while she's cleaning for the chametz. She wants to do this. And this is part of your chesed to her to look away, to not, if you like, laugh or mock her. Because this is something that comes naturally to women. women that we want 
our home to be pleasant. We want it to be organized. This is our opportunity. We want it to be as clean as possible, regardless of the chametz. Okay, if that's the way we're wired, and of course, everybody's different, and that's what we're going to talk about. And there is an idea in Yiddishkeit, right, that a pleasant environment widens a person's mind. A beautifully set table, beautiful vessels on the table, a clean home for a woman that's functional and organized and decluttered is a way of her mind feeling expansive and expanded, and it gets rid of, so to speak, the clutter that we feel inside of ourselves. Okay. Now, this is really interesting. This comes from a, a source. I don't know where. Actually, maybe it's from this pamphlet that he, um, that he wrote. Um, says, when you're cleaning and getting rid of dirt, there's an idea that you're redeeming your nefesh from pain and suffering. That dirt somehow creates pain and suffering for the nefesh. Now, everyone has a different threshold of what dirt means to them, right? I have a wonderful husband who likes to clean my kitchen. And a lot of times he says, I clean the kitchen. And of course, with a woman's view, it's like, Yes, it's very neat and tidy, but what about wiping the counters, right? Anyway, the point is, is we have an eagle's eye, women generally, for what we, our level of cleanliness is, that through no fault of their own, and of course, all men are different, they don't see it the same way we do, which is also why they can get annoyed by us going overboard for Pesach, but we can't help ourselves because... Amazingly, here is a source that says dirt creates uh, pain and suffering for the nefesh, a lack of cleanliness. Now, everybody, each one of us has a different threshold for what we consider clean. And this has a lot to do, number one, with our homer, back to our musr vad, right? Some people are just born clean freaks a little on the OCD side, right? Cannot handle it when things are out of order. And then other people are like the character Pigpen and the Charlie Browns, <laughs> whatever. Or at least they seem that way to us. Because if you're very much on the one extreme, you're going to look at everybody else as, you know, complete slobs if things are out of order, if things are not exactly where they're supposed to be and they're not at the level of cleanliness that you would expect. So you could have two people who grow up in the very same house who have a very different standard of cleanliness, right? You can have two kids living in one room as I did, one was Felix and one was Oscar. And you know, they were growing up in the same house with the same standards of cleanliness and neatness. And, you know, they had to draw a line down the room. No coming over, you slob, onto my side of the room. Because we all have a different level of what we consider normal in terms of cleanliness. My husband and I like to joke, we have a daughter-in-law who, while you're still eating the Shabbos meal, you have to lift up your feet under, you know, uh, uh, 
lift up your feet from the floor on the table because she's already sweeping the floor before you finish and her kitchen is spotless by the time you get up from the table. So, you know, Baruch Hashem, it's a wonderful thing to have, depending on if other people can live with you like that, you know, and whether it's an obsession or it's something where we're going to talk about that. But again, in the same family, children, grandchildren, you see some one kid can't stand when their hands are sticky. They can't stand when there's anything dirty on their hand. And another kid can walk around, you know, in the mud and not notice at all or not care at all about that. So cleanliness is very personal. And how much we want to clean before Pesach is also very personal, meaning when we want to go above and beyond. Right? So somebody who has a higher standard, who's more machmir on their cleaning, we might call them obsessive and ridiculous and like enough already, right? But they might look at others as disgusting. How can you not clean that? How can you not make that sparkling? Again, I'm talking here about cleanliness, not so much about cleaning for Pesach, okay? So we have to realize that part of this is our home era. What's your threshold when it comes to cleanliness? Because there is a Jewish idea that when I'm cleaning, I'm doing something for my nefesh. Because my nefesh has tsar from dirt. My nefesh does not like dirt. So cleanliness in Hebrew is called nikayon. And there's an idea that in every spiritual thing, right, the physical idea of being clean has a spiritual reality to it. The physical manifestation of something also has a spiritual reality. So again, as we're cleaning for Pesach and getting rid of the chametz on whatever level that means in terms of our cleanliness threshold, we're also supposed to be growing and becoming more spiritually refined. So on a lowest level, you know, a person doesn't want to rob a bank, right? If he's decide he's going to be, right? But on a higher level, a more refined level, a person will say, I don't want to have anything that doesn't belong to me. I don't even want a pen that doesn't belong to me. Now, obviously, this is a much higher spiritually refined level to be so sensitive to the idea of stealing, of Genevis, that it's not just about not robbing a bank, but it's about not wanting. I remember when I was in seminary, you know, people would leave pens on the desks after a class here and there. And we had a sign in the main room that all pens are hefgir, meaning they're free for all. They're free for anybody to take. Now, the reason we had to have this sign is because alpi halacha, according to halacha, if you use somebody's pen without asking permission, you've robbed them of a certain amount of ink that was in that pen. So this is the heights of spiritual refinement that a person can rise to and there are so many of these spiritually refined levels in Judaism in so many areas you know not embarrassing somebody 
right? It says that embarrassing somebody is akin to murder. So, you know, there are different levels of sensitivity that people develop who are spiritually refined in an area like that, constantly concerned about not embarrassing another person, realizing the severity of it. And of course, those of us who are works in progress may not have developed ourselves to that level. But the point is, is cleanliness, the idea of cleanliness physically alludes to the idea of being clean spiritually. And of course, this allows you to have a greater connection to Hashem. The more refined you are spiritually, the more sensitive you are, the more your sensibilities are honed, the greater you're going to be in all of your mitzvot. And just by the way, a big part of chametz is speech, right? When we're cleaning for chametz, we're also trying to be aware how much of our speech is connected to ego, is connected to talking when we shouldn't, saying things in a way we shouldn't say them. Forget about Lashon Hara and Rechilus and all the negative talk that we can do, right? But refining our speech, being more positive, recognizing that when we come to the Seder, Pesach, the word Pesach, which we usually translate as Passover, actually means Pesach, the mouth speaks. The entire evening of the Seder, we are busy talking, right? Haggadah means to tell over. Sipur Yitzias Mitzrayim, Lesaper, to tell the story. So in the Book of Our Heritage by Eliyahu Kito, he points out that you're not, the night of the Seder is a night when you're giving over and praising Hashem and telling the story to your children of what happened. And if you're coming to the Seder with a mouth that is, so to speak, still full of chametz, then those words are not going to be received in the way that they could. Because a big part of getting rid of chametz is refining and ennobling our speech. We're told that in Egypt, our speech was an exile. The Jewish people couldn't cry. They lost their ability to, to pray. And part of the redemption process is that we are able to speak again. But our speech has to be refined and ennobled in order to be able to sit down to the Seder and give over with the purity of our lips the story of our redemption and the praises that we sing to Hashem throughout the evening, right? If the vessel is clean, then obviously the elements inside of it will be pure. Okay. So cleanliness allows me to connect to Hashem. So we're not, um, we're not proposing that everybody should become OCD when it comes to cleaning for Pesach. And the more OCD I am, the closer I am to Hashem. But the idea of, interestingly, of Nisan, of the month of Nisan and our preparation for Pesach is this external cleanliness all around us, that we have to have this external cleanliness. And really, when you think about it, Rosh Hashanah, Elul, 
And that holiday is all about internal cleanliness. So it's almost like it's a connected process going again from this external, which again is obviously also tied to the internal, but we have this whole emphasis on this external cleaning that we don't have for any other holiday. So there is something about cleanliness. Cleanliness, as you know, we say is next to godliness. I don't know where that came from, if that came from us, but it's a very famous expression. Cleanliness is one of the pleasures of this world. Hana'ot ha'olam. There's even a tefillah, by the way, that if I find it, if I get it on my phone, I'm going to send it to our WhatsApp group that you can save for Pesach cleaning, which will give intentionality to your Pesach cleaning. Okay. If we look back at the Masila Sisharing and back to our um, discussion on Taiva, you know, why did Hashem create all the pleasures in this world? What is the purpose of pleasure in this world? So the Masila Sisharing, the path of the just, written by Rav Moshe Chaim Lutzato, tells us that the purpose of pleasure of the world is to give us tranquility so that I can overcome my difficulties so that I can overcome the challenges in my life. So even drinking a cup of coffee in the morning, that gives you pleasure and helps you to be able to handle your day. This is the idea of a simple pleasure in the world that is there for you to have greater tranquility to approach your day or with coffee, I'd say, give you the energy, right? To, to be able to overcome the difficulties of your day. Cleanliness means that when you're in a clean environment, it helps you to be more fo focused, right? There's an idea of Seder b'makom, Seder barosh. When there's Seder in my space around me, I have Seder in my head. And we know that Seder is a very important idea in Judaism, right? The Seder is called the Seder because there's an order to it. The Siddur comes from the word seder because there's an order to it, right? Order is very important because seder v'makom seder barosh. When there's order, a person can think, a person can perform. After our, you know, cleaning help leaves us, if you're fortunate enough to have a cleaning lady, you feel great because everything's in its place. There's seder v'makom. You know, somebody mentioned that Sending cleaning help to somebody who's sick is the greatest chesed that anybody ever did for them. I know somebody who had COVID at the very beginning and was really laid up for five, six months. And she said the greatest thoughtful gift that came to her was five months of cleaning help every day. Because she said she couldn't walk up and down her stairs. She couldn't move. And her husband certainly wasn't going to take care of things in the way that she does. And so, you know, I have to give credit because it was actually some of my family members and I wasn't part of it, who actually sent this woman cleaning help for five months so that she could get back on her feet. When you're visiting somebody who's sick, one of the greatest things you can do is to say, can I clean up for you? You know, there's stories about great sages, Rabbi Akiva, great people who would visit people and clean up, you know, 
Do you, do you have laundry that you need to do? You know how, how the environment when you're sick in bed, um, you know, gets cluttered. Everybody brings you food and they forget to take it down. And in a hospital room also, if you go in and you say, can I fix up your tray table? Can I organize things for you? For people, especially people who are cleanliness freaks and they can't do anything about it when they're lying there sick, it's one of the greatest chesses you can do. In a book about habits of successful people, it says successful people are people who make their bed in the morning. I remember Sarah Hanarakwik wrote an article like this in Mishpacha, that making your bed first thing in the morning is one of the most important things you can teach your child because it's just indicative of setting a tone for their personality and for their day and for success. And it's actually noted in this book that that is one of the habits of successful people. There are people who can't cook until their kitchen's clean, right? You can't go into a messy kitchen and start cooking. Of course, there are people who can't go to sleep without a fork in the sink, without tossing and turning. That's obviously one extreme, okay? Um, so Masila Sasharin tells us that the same pleasure that can make you focused and calm, meaning clean, cleanliness in this case, can be the same pleasure that if you're overly involved in it, can make you the complete opposite of tranquil and calm. And that's how a person measures whether this pleasure that, they're, that they have is, has diminishing returns. And certainly we can apply this to Pesach cleaning. So he asked the question, Rav Itamar Schwartz, when does cleanliness become a problem? And he says, when it becomes a luxury, he says, it's a problem if Olam Hazeh becomes too shiny. Olam Hazeh meaning this world. If your obsession with cleanliness and order becomes that you can't handle it, when things aren't perfect, when something is out of order, and you start snapping at everybody around you, and you get angry at all the people in your way. And of course, we know as women, this happens very easily before Pesach. When we've all got high expectations about the way things are supposed to be. And if we're naturally wired, that cleanliness is one of our greatest pleasures, he says it can be a problem when that pleasure actually becomes your nemesis your downfall, your character flaw. And of course, this is true for any pleasure. Okay? If you're obsessed with this world being perfect, always being shining, this may be on the side of diminishing returns. So again, our home air is different. What we need in terms of cleanliness but we know for sure that if I'm angry and snappy, resentful and negative, then cleanliness has become a problem, right? It's like, you know, that always idea of the house that has to look like a museum, right? I can't have my grandchildren over. I can't have people over because it's going to get dirty. You know, my son told me just the other day he went to a vort with three of his little kids. And I guess, I guess one of his kids had something on her, on his hands 
And he put his hand on the wall while this, you know, in this beautiful home where they were having this fancy engagement party. And my son, you know, and the, 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 um, the head of the house saw it. And, you know, my husband, my son started apologizing profusely and he went and he wiped it off and it was perfectly fine and clean. But like, even like a week later, he saw this man in shul and he apologized again. And he kept saying, no, no, it's okay. But, you know, just the idea that, you know, I, I don't know why I'm bringing that up, except for the idea that some people could be totally freaked out by it and get very, very annoyed. And other good people could be more gracious about it because they understand what's my real value. Is my value cleanliness or is my value relationships and connection with other people? Because if our cleanliness is out of hand, we can, of course, destroy relationships. And often what happens with that, which gives us pleasure when it's too much, is that even though on a conscious intellectual level, we know what our true values are, that our relationships are more important, we, we, can't, we can't control ourselves. And we get upset and angry about other things. I just actually read a very good thing. I did a marriage class for some women, young women between 30 and 40 uh, last week. And it came up in this book that just came out uh, called um, 10 Mistakes, 10 Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make, if you've heard of it, by Rabbi Schaefer. Anyway, there's an idea that, you know, let's say, you know, you send your husband out to shop for some groceries and he brings home five squishy tomatoes. And of course, as a woman, you're wondering, like, didn't you feel them? Didn't you notice that they were, you know, squishy, that they were rotten, whatever it is. But instead of getting angry and upset, what you have to think to yourself and maybe even say to your spouse is, I love you more than tomatoes. I love you more than squishy tomatoes. You know, so it's reminding yourself, what's your purpose? Your purpose is connection and relationship. It's not being right. And it's not pointing out the other person's faults and not pointing out what they're doing wrong. It's about building and connecting the relationship. That's just a side point. But this is what can happen if your cleanliness starts to have diminishing returns. So one of the signs of pleasure gone too far is when it's causing a compromise in a value that you think is important, like connection to other people, right? If you're shopping too much because shopping gives you pleasure or you're cleaning too much, right? There's a litmus test that you can take if your relationships with other people are being affected in a negative way. Okay, how are we doing with time? Oh my goodness. Okay, the third idea is the idea of Seder. So we talked about cleanliness. Now we're talking about order, organization. So if you're decluttering at this time of year and you're doing it for Seder, then it's not negative. Because like we said, Seder, and there's Seder to this world and Hashem likes Seder, and Hashem has Seder. He has a plan for this world. And when we have Seder, again, the Makom, we have Seder in our brain. So what's the spiritual parallel to Seder, to having an organized home? So Rav Chaim Friedlander, the Sif Chaim, says, 
that some people have a natural chomer to be calm. And if you're not naturally like this, and somebody tells you to calm down, you get very angry at them. So how do you work on becoming more of a calm person? And basically, he's espousing the idea of mindfulness. He's saying people who are engaged in the present moment have a tsura of calmness. They're able to develop their calmness, meaning they're not living in the future, a place of worry and coming up with all kinds of imaginative ideas of what might happen. And they're also not living in the past of why did I say that? Why didn't I do it that way? How could she speak to me this way? We are focused and engaged on the present moment. And that's the secret of a calm person. A calm person doesn't worry about the future or stress about the past. When, you're, when you are focused, you can't be in the past or the future. And your brain is decluttered. And he basically says anybody who's living in the future or the past he calls it bizbuz hachayim, wasting your life. If your life and your mind is cluttered with past and future thoughts. So when you declutter in the external world, it's a model for your internal world. And he says this idea that I've said before, that there's nothing wrong with thinking about something in the future and making time in your day to think about what you're going to do but it shouldn't be something that you're ruminating over all day long. This is bizbuzachayim, it's wasting your life. And the same is true about something that happened, something where you obsess over the past. He says, you know, it's okay to say, why did that happen? Why did I say that? You know, next time I shouldn't engage in this, in this discussion that I know is a trigger for me when it's midnight and I'm too tired to deal with it. There's nothing wrong with going back over what happened in the past in order to do things differently the next time. But to just ruminate over and over again about something that happened without deciding how you're gonna make it different next time, if there's something that you could have done about it, then it clutters your brain and it takes away your menucha sanefesh the calmness that you need in order to be living life in the right way, in a mindful way. Okay, I'm just going to end with a story about Rav Chaim Kanievsky. Rav Chaim Kanievsky Zatzel, who you know was one of the, or was, is considered by many to be the Gadol Hador of this generation in terms of his Limud Torah. Nobody learned Torah the way Rav Chaim did in terms of its breadth. And I mean, I, I, I can't remember how often he went through Shas, maybe, I don't know how many times a year, the entire Talmud and all kinds of other, you know, foundational works of Torah, um, the Zohar and everything else that he was constantly chazering. Rav Chaim Kanievsky, we're told, used to daven to Hashem that his brain should not be cluttered with any kind of trivialities. They said he didn't even know the names of the streets near his house because he wanted his mind to be so completely 
involved in Torah, that anything that was extraneous or something that he didn't need to know, he prayed to Hashem that it shouldn't clutter his brain. So we're talking again on an extremely high and refined level of a great, great personality who wanted his mind to be open only for important things that were relevant to his Limara Torah and his growth as a Torah personality. And just to give you an idea of what this means. So there was a, a, um, a man who told somebody else the story that he went to Rav Chaim Kanievsky to ask him a question. He had heard an idea you know, that the resurrection of the dead is going to start from the cave of Machpelah. And he thought, you know, he'd seen that idea and heard it. And he wanted to ask Rav Chaim Kanievsky if that was true. So he said, while he was sitting there waiting for the answer, it was as if Rav Chaim Kanievsky was going through every page of everything he learns to find that he was going like, Baba Metziah, no, you know, Baba Basra, no. Da, 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 da. And he did this for about five minutes and then he went the Zohar and he said yes this is where it's found that there is a source that this is where Tchias Amazing will start so his knowledge was encyclopedic it was so well organized he had a Seder Barosh that was unbelievable but listen to this last story I want to leave you with again he was Davin please Hashem don't allow my brain to be taken up with anything that's unnecessary. Anyway, another story, which I hadn't heard until I listened to this, this class this morning, is a story of a photographer who saw Rav Chaim Kanievsky feeding a cat many, many years ago. And of course, he was so taken by it that he snapped a picture. And Rav Chaim knew that he snapped the picture and he asked him to please erase the picture now. And the man, you know, was a little bit fearful and, you know, uh, upset that he'd upset Rav Chaim and he erased the picture and showed Rav Chaim that it was gone. Meanwhile, this same photographer, this same man, 20 years later, brought his son before his bar mitzvah to meet Rav Chaim Kanievsky. And when he came into the room, Rav Chaim lifted up his head from his learning and said to this photographer slash father, I've been waiting for you for 20 years. And you can imagine the number of people that Rav Chaim would greet and meet every single day that were lined up on the street, it, at, you know, at the door of his house, waiting to have their moment with him. And 20 years later, he says, I was waiting for you for 20 years to ask you, Mechila, to ask you forgiveness for the fact that I spoke a little bit too sharply when I asked you to erase that picture. Wow. Wow. So his mind was uncluttered except for those things that were really, really important. The learning of Torah and the 
Midos, the way that you behave with other people, the kavod that he had for every single human being that came into his presence. Because he understood and he remembered and he knew that our prime real estate, right, which is our brains. I, I didn't mention this idea, but there's a woman named Yael Wiesner, who is a professional declutterer in Israel, and she has many followers. She actually has a podcast on Jewish podcasts. Dina Schoonmaker says she was a student of hers who came from a privileged home and had no concept of how to clean a house. And she, like many of her other Michlala students did not know how to run a home. And they used to get together for support groups and discuss every week a different topic, laundry, you know, cleaning toilets, whatever it was, and help each other. Until, of course, she became her greatest weakness, became her greatest strength. And today she's one of the top declutterers. And she says in Israel, especially people who lived in big, huge mansions in Chutzlaaretz, now have to live in tiny little apartments. And she says, when it comes to Pesach cleaning, and in general, that a shelf is prime real estate. And there shouldn't be things on your prime real estate that are just cluttering things up. They need to be functional. They need to be useful. You know, and you shouldn't just have things in places where they don't need to be your front hall closet or whatever it is. It shouldn't have things in there that you don't use. This is one of her things. So just to end, the idea is that our prime real estate is our minds, right? And we don't wanna clutter up our minds with things from the past or things from the future that take us away from intentionality, from mindfulness, from being focused, because when a person is focused and has intentionality and is living in the present, in the moment, they have established a certain calmness. Because when you're in the moment, you cannot be thinking about the past or the future. You know that lady when you're in the zone, right? It could be playing piano, it could be drawing a picture, it could be talking to a friend and the time just goes. When you're in the zone and you're in the moment, you are in a totally wonderful and connected place. So again, my brain spacious space is precious. And even we can daven to Hashem, help me not to think about things that don't serve me, that don't make me happy, that don't create calm. And realize again that the external Seder around us does affect our internal Seder. The organization around us does make a difference in our heads. And so, you know, our families who are watching us cleaning and getting ready for Pesach in the way that we do uniquely, each one of us, based on our threshold for cleanliness. And what for us is giving our tsar, sorry, giving our nefesh pleasure and removing the tsar, that clutter and, and dirt cause the nefesh you know, that is something that should not be laughed at or made fun of. And just one last idea, Rav Yeruchim Levavitz said that all your midos and your strengths are like jewels on a necklace. But Seder, organization, cleanliness is the clasp that holds all of those things together.
So again, it's not just about being OCD or extreme or spring cleaning or not being able to just get rid of the chametz, which of course would take us a lot less time if that's all we were doing. But it's also about feeling seder b'makom seder barosh. And it's about giving pleasure to that aspect of cleanliness, which is very much a part of a woman's psyche. You know, all of us, of course, in varying degrees based on our home air. And so when we sit down to the Seder, the only thing we have to know is that if we were angry and resentful and snapping and yelling at everybody, then that no longer becomes pleasure that creates calm. It's pleasure with diminishing returns. That is a pleasure that is no longer, that, that completely undermines our true values, which is connection and love and, and relationships. So Ladies, our goal is not to come to the Seder exhausted or resentful or completely unable to function because as we're going to talk about next week, there are mitzvahs that a woman has to do at the Seder and you have to be totally focused and totally with it. And so coming there like a shmata or falling asleep in your matzah ball soup, which I think I remember my mother doing, is not no longer allowed. Okay, anyway, happy cleaning, everybody. Have a wonderful week and Mirz Hashem. Class is next Sunday. There's no class on Wednesday this week, but there will be one more class on Pesach next Sunday, Mirz Hashem. So have a wonderful week and enjoy getting Thank you. Thank you. And out. Thank you. I took so many notes and I love you and I thank you. Thanks, Kim. All right. Take care, everybody. Enjoy the winter. It's here again. Bye. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you.